This message was recorded during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Privilege we've had this morning to see that. It's a great privilege to be with you this morning in the great city of Knoxville. As I've traveled down from Louisville, Kentucky, you know, even though it's not too far north, we get a bit colder weather, so it's nice to have a bit more warmth here and uh, to gather with the people of God. That's not something we take for granted either uh, over this last year. There's nothing like meeting with God's people to encourage one another to uh, spend time in Scripture and to glorify our great God, our triune God in the face of the Lord Jesus. So our goal this morning is to look at a wonderful portion of Scripture, a very, very important portion, Romans chapter 3, and I invite you to turn to that well-known paragraph, Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. We'll introduce this in a moment, but let me just read it, and then we'll pray, and then we will speak about and we will think about, right? We, yesterday, if you were here, we were looking at uh, the, who Jesus is and the person of the Lord Jesus, uh, uh, the God the Son who has become human, the Word became flesh. We focus primarily on, on who He is, right? The incarnate Son of God. And, uh, of course, you, when you think of who He is, you can't separate that from His work, what He does for us. Uh, in his life, in his death, in his resurrection. And I thought this morning we would focus our attention on the glory of Christ and what he's done for us in the cross, right? What he's done for us in his work. And uh, there's no greater portion of scripture to turn to than this one. So follow along as I read God's word. Uh, I'm reading from you know, all these different translations and that. So I have the uh, New International Version from 1984, right? So, uh, so follow along. It's, um, and I make a few improvisations of it uh, depending on <laughs> the text. So that's just the way it goes with all these translations. But <laughs> Romans 3, 21 through 26. Hear the word of the Lord. But now, a righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known to which the law and the prophets bear witness. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God. And we are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus, Messiah Jesus. God presented Him as a sacrifice of atonement, or a better, God presented Him as a propitiation through faith in His blood. God did this to demonstrate that He is just. Because in his forbearance, he left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it. God did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Now that's loaded. <laughs> Glorious passage. Let's pray and ask the Lord's help. 
as we look at it. Heavenly Father, thank you for your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, indeed, as our triune God, that you have planned our salvation before the foundation of the world. You have brought it about in space-time history by the sending of your Son, who went to the cross, who lived our life, who died our death, who achieved our redemption, who delivered us from the power of sin, who became our propitiation in order to justify us before you and to demonstrate beyond any question that you are just. You are just. You are righteous. You are the Holy One who will not overlook sin, but in your Son, you have paid for it in full, and in Him alone we are justified. In Him alone we have a full and right salvation. In Him alone we have the forgiveness of our sins, the hope of eternal life, everything that we have of your great and sovereign and gracious gifts is in Jesus and all that he has done for us. Help us to see from this great and glorious passage what he has done again for us, how he is our only hope, and how we even this week may find in him our all-sufficient Savior. And it's in his name that we ask all these things. Amen. Amen. Well, as we look at the whole Bible, and we look particularly at the New Testament, but, you know, it's tied to the whole Bible. There's nothing more central in the work of Christ than His cross. Now, obviously, the work of Christ encompasses His coming, His incarnation, uh, His whole life lived, right? He began His ministry at 30 years old, and He lived for us as our coveted head and, and representative. He obeyed for us. Philippians 2 speaks of his humiliation in incarnation all the way through life to death, death even on a cross, and his resurrection, and his ascension, and his pouring out of the Spirit at Pentecost, and his coming again. That's all part of his work. But there's something in Scripture that speaks of the centrality at the heart of that work, the Son of God, in order to achieve our salvation, had die. Now, we're used to that, <laughs> but it does raise a question of why, right? Why the Son of God had to die, and especially that raises an important question because when we think of who Jesus is, we're not thinking of just a man. We're not just thinking of a great religious leader who was living in the first century, who taught great things, but then fell under the arm of Roman injustice and Jewish opposition and so on, and he was a martyr for the cause, right? The problem with that is that's not the Jesus of the Bible, right? The Jesus of the Bible is the eternal Son of God. The Jesus of the Bible is the eternal Son who is the one who shared from eternity with the Father and the Spirit, the divine nature. He's fully God. And in His incarnation, He remains fully God. He takes on our humanity. He is the sovereign Lord of the universe. Everything He does is He is in total charge. Right? We see this through the Gospels. He orchestrates, right, even all the way from His life, all the way through the Last Supper, where donkeys are there and places are done. And He says to 
his disciples in John 10, no one takes my life. <laughs> I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up. He says to Pilate, you only have authority over me because I've given it to you. Right? He is in total charge. So then you have to ask this, your, the question, what's he doing on the cross? <laughs> Why was it necessary? And that word necessary is really important. Why was it necessary for him to go to the cross to save us? Why couldn't he have just taught us some great lessons and we go on from there? Right? Why couldn't he have just, you know, brought a, a revolutionary cause and uh, brought a new change to the world in terms of a political revolution? Why does the Son of God have to die and die when we think of a cross in the first century, right, the cross is a place of curse. The cross is the place where only the worst of worst go. Right? Not even Roman citizens, unless they were treasonous, would ever go to a cross. But what is the Son of God in the very plan of God going to the cross for? Right? Now that question obviously is at the heart of the gospel, right? It's at the heart of making sense of why the Son of God has come, what He has achieved for us, and how you and I can be made right and justified before God, right? Apart from that cross, Scripture is very clear, we have no salvation, right? There is no way for us to have the forgiveness of sins. There is no way that we can be justified. So what is going on in the cross that achieves that justification. What is achieving that forgiveness? Why this event? Right. Now, there's many places we could turn to try to answer that question, but really, Romans 3 and Hebrews 9, right? but we're not looking at Hebrews, but Hebrews 9 verses 15 and following probably come the closest. There are certain passages in the Bible that really answer questions that we ask, right? If you were to ask the question, why did God the Son become human? Hebrews 2 is a great text, right? But if you were to ask, why did the Son of God who became human die for us? Romans 3 is the closest passage, along with Hebrews 9, that answers that question explicitly. Other places you will have a description of the cross. He is our reconciliation. He is our victor. He is a number of things. But this passage really gets us as to the heart of the rhyme and reason. Why did Jesus have to die? Right? Think of in his gospel and the ministry in his life, right? Three occasions he says to his disciples, I must go to Jerusalem. I must die. Even Peter doesn't understand initially, does he? But eventually in the plan of God, he is the one who must offer himself for us. Why? Right? Now Romans 3, as I said, is the text that answers this most specifically. In the history of the church, this has been a text that has transformed people's understanding of the gospel. In the Reformation, Martin Luther, the famous reformer that saw in this passage, he says at one point, he says, this text, Romans 3, 21 and following, this text is the chief point and the very central place of the entire epistle of Romans and the whole Bible, right? That's quite a statement. This text is so, so important, and it was revolutionary for Luther to understand 
the gospel and to understand why Jesus died and understand justification. Others have made similar claims. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a famous British uh, pastor and evangelical, said of this text, he says, we are looking here at the most important verses in the entire Bible. Now, of course, preachers have the tendency <laughs> to do hyperbole with text, right? This is the most important passage. But there's something about this text which is crucial, right? Not only its place in the book of Romans, but ultimately it answers this question, why? Why the cross? Why was it necessary for him to go there, right? And we have to answer that question, and that's what we're seeking to do this morning. As we approach Romans 3, 21, it's important to set it in context. So the first thing we need to do is to see where we are in this epistle, this letter, right? We'll never understand the Romans 3, 21 and first, unless we understand Romans chapter 1, 2, and 3, right? If you go back to chapter 1, the Apostle Paul lays out his case of the gospel. And in fact, in chapter 1, verse 16... He is saying to the Roman church, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. And the everyone here is now in the category of Jew and Gentile. That's the way the Bible divides up the world. Right? Given the covenants of the Old Testament, you're either in Israel under the Old Covenant or you're outside of it. Right? But this gospel now comes to Jew and to Gentile. Verse 17, for in this good news... In the gospel, a righteousness of God is revealed. The gospel is the revelation of the righteousness of God from faith. First to last, the just shall live by faith. But before he moves, and of course in 321, he picks up precisely, but now the righteousness of God is revealed in Christ. But before he gets to 321, is he spends first time looking at another revelation. In the gospel, you have a revelation of the righteousness of God, but you also have a revelation, and that gets picked up in chapter 1, verse 18, of God's wrath. We'll never understand 321 without understanding, first, the problem that we all face, right? Revelation, or Romans 321 is the solution to the problem that he lays out in chapter 1 and 2 and 3. And we won't go through all of this, but it's very clear here that as he lays out the revelation of God's wrath, he is laying out the human problem, right? He's going back to the Old Testament, isn't he? He's going back to the early chapters of the Bible where Adam was created in the image of God, that he represented us. But in Genesis 3, Adam rebelled and Adam's sin wasn't just a one-off, right? It affected him, it affected all of his children, but it was that which affected the entire human race, right? The only way you make sense of that, Romans 5 will deal with that, is that Adam functions as not just the first man, but the covenant head of the human race. And by that one action in space-time history, all have been affected, right? Every single one of us, whether we like it or not, come into this world post-fall. We come into this world in Adam. 
He's the old man of Scripture. Nothing to do with your father, right? He's the old man. <laughs> He's the head of the old creation. And that old creation, even though it was created good, now under sin, death, condemnation. And the Apostle Paul spends three chapters laying that out. And that's instructive for us, right? It's instructive for understanding of the gospel. We will only appreciate what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us, right? And the need for a Savior, unless we first see our sin before God, right? Sin in Scripture has all kinds of ramifications. But its primary point is that, and you see this in Genesis 3, we have violated God's command. God who has made us, who is our creator and Lord, who calls for us to be loyal to him and love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. The great commandment doesn't just show up in the New Testament. It shows up in creation. Right? God made us to know him and to love him in Adam, all of us now. Jew, Gentile, and the Apostle Paul spends time first looking at the Gentile. Gentiles who are in Adam, who have turned from the revelation of God, who are now under divine wrath. The Jew also who has had privileges, uh, who has had the covenants and so on, they too are under the wrath of God. So then as you come to chapter 3, verse 9, as he sort of concludes this revelation of divine wrath, he says in verse 9, what shall we conclude? Are we, we Jews, any better? No, 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 we're all under sin. And then he quotes text after text after text. And then he says in verse 20, therefore no one. And in the context here, this is nobody, no human being ever. No one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. And the works of the law certainly refers to the Jew, the old covenant, but even to the Gentile by extension, right? So the law written on the heart and so on. No one will be declared righteous just before God on the works of the law. Rather, through that very law, we become conscious of sin, but. And that's where 321 picks up. But now, these are the, you know, Charles Spurgeon from yesteryear used to call these the blessed buts. <laughs> the transition. We have the bad news, and the bad news is really bad. We are under judgment. We are under condemnation. We are guilty. We are defiled. We are polluted. All the ways the Bible describes the doctrine of sin, right? Apart from God's initiative, but God initiating to save and to provide, we can't save ourselves. And that's the point that he is mentioning here in chapter 1, verses 1, 2, and 3, that sets us up for this. So that when we come to, now our, our, our section, but now, this now here, and the but is now speaking of a huge transition that has occurred. Now with, and the now here is, is time, right? Now in space and time, now in redemptive history, now in the plan of God, there is the giving of the Son, God has given his son in the fullness of time, and in the giving of that son, now there is the full display of the righteousness of God, that righteousness which is set over against the revelation of God's wrath. 
We see in this passage, as we've read, that the righteousness of God really governs, in some sense, the entire passage. You see that in verse 21, but now the revelation of God's righteousness, right? All the way back to chapter 1. In the gospel is the revelation of the righteousness of God. This righteousness is then tied to our justification, right? You see it in verse 22. This righteousness comes through Jesus Christ. We are justified. The whole passage is dealing with God's justice, His righteousness, the display of His righteousness. Now, one of the problems that we have as we read this passage, right, and we see these different words as we have translation from the original Greek to then the English is sometimes the words of the Greek don't come over to the English just perfectly. In English usage, when we speak of righteousness, we often speak of something that is personal, right, or individual. When we speak of justice, right, we speak of something usually that's public, right? But in Scripture here, both these words, righteousness and justice, all come from the same root, right? They're all the same. You can speak of the righteousness of God, the justice of God. They're all bound up together. And then it gets tied to our justification or our being declared right, right, righteous, right? So as the Apostle Paul lays this out, in the gospel is the revelation of the righteousness of God. It's important to think carefully about what God's righteousness is and then how it comes to us in terms of justification, right? If we step back and think of God as righteous or the righteousness of God, we have to first think in terms of God's very character. God is just, right? He's the standard of justice. He's the standard of right and wrong. He is the the moral law of the universe in that sense, right? There's no higher law than him. He is the moral standard, right? He is just. He is righteous. But then we know from Scripture, this phrase here, righteousness of God, isn't just speaking of him as the standard. It's also speaking of him displaying that righteousness, So that as you walk through the Old Testament, God who is righteous, right, in light of sin, brings about a promise of salvation. And so part of the righteousness of God from the Old Testament is that God keeps his promises. God is so doing something in the world to make things right, and that's part of God's righteousness as well. So if you put this together, we can say the display of the righteousness of God is God's justifying activity to show that he is just and two the implication for us is to justify us right both of those ideas are here in this display of God's righteousness God's justifying activity to display his holy righteous just character and then to put sinners in the right and ultimately to make the universe right right? all of that is there And the Apostle Paul will say that righteousness of God is now given and displayed in Christ, in his cross, right? And the spillover effect will come to us, but there will also be in this passage God himself demonstrating himself to be just, right? And both of those things are kept together as 
this passage unfolds. So the Apostle Paul says, after the revelation of divine wrath, we now have the revelation of the righteousness of God. Now, the first thing he says about this revelation of the righteousness of God is he, as the Apostle Paul does, and as the entire New Testament does, he ties it back to the Old Testament, doesn't he? Verse 21 is so important, and this will become part of the important logic that he unfolds for us to show that Christ's death had to happen and why it was necessary and so on. In verse 21, he says, the revelation of the righteousness of God is apart from the law. Yet, the law and the prophets bear witness to it. That's, that's a, you have to think through a little bit what he's getting at there, right? This would sound strange unless you think of this carefully because you would say, well, how does the righteousness of God come apart from the law? Wouldn't the law itself display the righteousness of God? <laughs> how does it come apart? Well, I think the best way to think of this is to think of this covenantally. Right? What he's saying here is, now with the coming of Christ, we have the full display of God's justifying activity at work that will put us in the right, and it comes apart from the law. Don't take law here just simply as, say, the Ten Commandments or so. It's really a law covenant. It's the old covenant, right? He's been spending time looking at Gentiles and Jews under that covenant. And what he is saying is, this righteousness that comes in Jesus Christ, you can't get from the law covenant alone. Now, this picks up a whole number of other passages in Scripture and so on, but it's very, very clear with the Apostle Paul, the author of Hebrews, the whole New Testament will never present the old covenant to the nation of Israel as an end in itself. If all you had was the old covenant with its sacrificial system and its priesthood and its offerings and so on, the truth of the matter is it would never save you. Right? Now, does that mean it was useless, it wasn't given of God and so on? No, 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 no. It was given of God to the nation of Israel to govern their life, God forgave their sin, yet it also pointed forward. And that's the point that he's picking up here. The Jew who is under the old covenant, they will never have the righteousness of God that he's talking about by that old covenant alone. We can see this, say, in the book of Hebrews where priests are offering sacrifices day by day. Just think of the repetitious nature of those sacrifices. That's telling you, isn't it? In Hebrews 9, 8, he says, the Holy Spirit was showing us. <laughs> you needed something more. Right? Even the offering of the lambs would never fully satisfy uh, our sin and satisfy a representation for us. It pointed forward. It was, it was part of the plan of God that looked forward to the coming of Christ, but by itself it could not deliver the righteousness of God. That only now comes in the new covenant. That only now comes in Christ, and that only comes in what He has done. Right? We see this in the Old Testament where in Psalm 51, it's a great psalm of David, a very, very important psalm. That's the psalm where David is crying out after his sin with Bathsheba. And he's saying to God, oh, God, cleanse me and wash me. And he appeals to God to forgive him of his sin. But it's very important to see that he doesn't appeal, first and foremost, to the sacrificial system. 
The reason for that is David's sin with Bathsheba is a high-handed sin. Numbers 15, verse 30, speaks about high-handed sins. High-handed sins under the Old Covenant were not covered by the sacrificial system. So what does David now do? <laughs> David's in big trouble. He can't go just offer a sacrifice to deal with his sin. So what does he have to do? He has to eventually appeal to God. God, I've sinned against you. You are going to have to do something to remedy the problem because this system in and of itself can't fully save. The prophets say the same thing as well. And the Apostle Paul says that to us here. Righteousness of God does not come from the law covenant, but the law and the prophets, the law covenant, the prophets, the Old Testament points forward to it. In a whole host of ways, it anticipates the coming of Messiah, the coming, and that's why he mentions salvation is in Christ Jesus, right? So the revelation of God now is apart from the law covenant, but it is now found in Christ and the dawning of the new covenant. Well, how does that come about? Well, that's what he's going to explain, right? In explaining its relation to the Old Testament, God's righteousness, he then speaks about now its availability to everyone, <laughs> Right in the Old Testament, Gentiles had to come under that Old Covenant to benefit from it. But this is now being done away. Right? This is what his emphasis here in verse 22 is. Right? This righteousness of God comes through faith in Jesus Messiah, right? Jesus Christ. To all who believe, all there deals with, in this context, Jew and Gentile. There is no difference. Now under the Old Covenant... From Abraham through Israel, right, there was distinction for a period of time. But even under the Abrahamic covenant, God was looking forward to a seed that would bring blessing to the nations, right? And so now this is what's being announced. This righteousness of God, what the Old Testament anticipated, has now come in Jesus Christ so that all Jew-Gentile, all those in Adam now can benefit by faith. In Christ Jesus, right? This is the glory of the new covenant, isn't it? The new covenant doesn't have divisions within it. So, well, you're a Jew, you're a Gentile. So, no, we are all one in Christ Jesus, right? Christ Jesus has come and he has now provided the grounds for the Abrahamic promise to be realized so that all nations, every tribe, nation, people, and tongue are now found in salvation in him. And that is what he is emphasizing here. So this is available now to all those who have faith. All those who believe, who have placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to speak about this righteousness in terms of its source, right? its initiation. Right? And here he speaks of, and it's very, very important to see, he speaks of God's grace, right? God's love, God's undeserved favor. See this in verse 23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and we are, those who believe, we are declared right. We are justified. We are justified, declared right, freely <laughs> by His grace. Right? This underscores the fact that salvation from beginning to end is a work of of God's initiation. You don't save yourself. You can't sort of pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, right? David knew that. Anyone knows that. 
but it's by God's initiation that we receive our declaration of being in the right freely. Nothing we contribute. How could you contribute? <laughs> it's all by grace, God's undeserved favor, because God has done something to remedy the problem and display his very righteousness and put us in the right, right? Now, in this grace that he has displayed to us, now this grace is seen in and through totally, completely, the Lord Jesus. And now you have a description of how that grace comes to us. It comes to us, and you have a number of words here that describe the cross. It comes to us through, verse 24, the redemption how does the righteousness of God displayed before us? How do we put, are put in the right by grace? It's through his cross as an act of redemption. Redemption in scripture is a beautiful image. It's an image that goes all the way back to the Exodus. Right? God redeems his people. At the heart of redemption is an act of liberation. Right? Right? God frees, he delivers, but always by price. Of course, the point of the price is mentioned here over and over again in his blood, in his sacrifice, in his death. And the idea here is the righteousness of God comes to Jew and Gentile, all those who believe, because Christ in his cross has bought us back. He has freed us. In the cross, right, he has set us free. And then you say, well, how has he done that? What are the effects? How did that happen? Well, he goes on to describe. Through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus, God presented him as a propitiation. <laughs> We're now getting more clear as to how God has liberated us, how he has bought us back. He's bought us back by God. Sending the Son to be a propitiation for us. In fact, it says here, God presented him. He, he publicly put him before the world as, we would say here, a propitiatory sacrifice. Now, what does that mean? Well, I must admit that propitiation isn't a word that's always commonly used in our, our vocabulary, but it's a very, very important word when it comes to the cross. Right? It's found about four times in the New Testament. And in the Old Testament, right, it's really bound up with the mercy seat. Right? Remember the Old Covenant where in the Holy of Holies, the Ark of the, the Tabernacle where the sacrifice was offered, and the mercy seat, the blood was poured. And the imagery here is, is that through the sending of the Son, His redemptive work, His buying us back, He has become our mercy seat. Now the whole imagery here is of turning away wrath. The concept of propitiation is the idea that if you propitiate someone, they are out of favor with you. They are angry with you, right? And to propitiate them is to turn back their disfavor. And in this context here, it becomes very, very important to see that God takes the initiative in love, right? Most people see wrath as the opposite of love. But God takes the initiative in love to propitiate his wrath in Christ. Now, the only way you can make sense of this, right, is to properly understand who Jesus is. Remember we said, we began with the fact that Jesus isn't just some man. He isn't just some third party out there that sort of God throws his wrath on. No, Jesus is the eternal Son of God who's become flesh. 
So what is going on here is that God himself in his son, the son who is God equal with God, who takes on our humanity in the Lord Jesus, God himself, God the son, God is taking his own wrath upon himself. <laughs> that is so crucial, right? And of course that makes sense given the fact that we as sinners have sinned against God God is the one we've offended, and God takes the initiative in grace to remedy his offense by sending his son to stand as a substitute in our place. Now this is unpacking how it is that our justification takes place. He took my place. He went to the cross for me. He bore my penalty. He took God's wrath upon himself. Now, why is all that necessary? Well, that leads us to verse 25 and 26. That really gets us sort of at the very heart of why the cross is necessary. Why is all this necessary? Why is it the righteousness of God in the cross? Why did he have to die to be our redemption and be our propitiation and so on? Well, verse 25 and 26 finally give you the answer. God presented him as a propitiation through faith in his blood. He did this. Why did God do this? He did this to demonstrate, to reveal, to display before the world that God himself is just. And then he is able to justify us, right? He demonstrates he is just. So here's the rationale for the cross. In the cross... It is a demonstration of the very justice of God. Why does God have to demonstrate? How does the cross demonstrate that he is just, right? Well, there's this next phrase that really goes back to the Old Testament era again, right? He did this to demonstrate that he is just because in his patience, in his long-suffering, he left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. And we've already seen that, haven't we? I've already sort of set you up for that with verse 21, right? The old covenant, right? Under the law covenant, God forgave all kinds of people. He forgave David. Uh, under the Abrahamic covenant, right? One of the famous passages of the Abrahamic covenant, Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him, declared unto him that he's righteous. But what this passage is saying is what we've already alluded to in verse 21 is if you had the Old Testament or the Old Covenant alone, if you never had the coming of Christ, if you never had his atoning work, there would be a huge problem. And the huge problem would be on what basis were Abraham and David and Moses and Old Testament saints forgiven of their sin. If you say the sacrificial system, it's not enough. So on what basis is God declaring them just? Doesn't this raise the question, if God says, you are just, but there's not a proper basis for it, that God's arbitrary. And that's why it raises this question here of God is not arbitrary. God doesn't just... And of course, this is what we have to communicate uh, with people in terms of the gospel, right? The God of the Bible just doesn't overlook sin. 
he doesn't just sort of say, well, you know, let's sort of have the balances of life, right? And you have done good deeds, and we'll weigh that in the balance, and we'll say, well, you're okay. You made it uh, 50, you know, 60% or 75%, and we'll give you a, a pass into heaven. I mean, most people think that. But the God of the Bible is not that kind of God, is he? The God of the Bible demands holiness and perfection. He is just. He is righteous. He is the very standard of justice. But if in the past... If in the Old Covenant he is not punishing the sins fully, no sacrifice of the Old Testament punished them fully. No David, as we said, had a full atonement for Bathsheba. What is God going to do? He is now going to remedy that problem in the giving of his son. And the son is now because of who he is. Right? He is God the Son. He is now able to take his own demand upon himself so that, and the point here is, no sin is left unpunished. In the cross, this work of redemption, this work of bearing wrath, meets God's demand totally, fully, perfectly, there's not one outstanding sin that's not yet punished. It is now finished, right? Isn't this the promise of the new covenant? You remember back in Jeremiah, the old covenant, or the, under Jeremiah, they had the promise of the new covenant. At the heart of the promise of the new covenant, God says, there's coming a day in the future when I will remember their sins no more. Now, put that in the context of the Old Testament. The Day of Atonement was every year. Sacrifices were done daily. God remembered their sins over and over and over again. But in the future, the prophets say, there's coming a day when sin will be so dealt with, it is done. Now, how does that happen? This is right here. It happens in the Son of God, who is God. <laughs> It happens in him taking on our humanity so that he's able to identify with us and represent us and to take his own demand upon himself so that God's very moral demand is perfectly, fully met, right? So that by faith in Jesus Christ, it's no wonder that God says, you're justified. <laughs> you, even though, even in this life, you still sin, in Christ Jesus, you're righteous. <laughs> Even now, right, you are righteous in him and you will be that for eternity. And yes, God will transform us and he will make us new and so on. And he's doing that even now in sanctification. Yet even now, as the Apostle Paul will later say in Romans 8, anyone in Christ now, now, presently, there's no condemnation. How could there be? Because Christ is our head. Christ is our mediator. Christ has died for us. My sin has been paid for in full. And that's what he is emphasizing here. In the cross, the demonstration of the justice of God so that God shows himself to be. And the good news is here is God really is a moral standard. Right? God is not arbitrary. You think of the implications of God being arbitrary. There would be no moral standard in the universe. It would be horrible. God is just and righteous. He's the moral standard. But how do you stand before him? There's a redeemer. There's a redeemer who pays for sin in full. Right? 
Now, of course, the implication of this is that outside of Christ, where do you stand? Right? Outside of Christ, you can't go back to the law covenant. Outside of Christ, you can't go to your own works. The assumption behind all of this is God demands obedience. God demands perfection from each one of us. We are under sin. The only hope for us, and this, of course, is the rhyme and reason of why Christ is exclusive. Why he's all-sufficient. I mean, we have to communicate that to our day. Why is it that he alone is Lord and Savior? Why? Because of who God is. Because of who you are. And because the only solution is that God himself and his son remedies the problem. It's a divine work of grace from beginning to end. And there's no contribution that you give. And that's good news. In him, everything is met perfectly. Outside of him... It's judgment. It's condemnation, right? Why is even judgment eternal? Because you have no payment for your sin, right? You stand before a holy God, right? The only hope for us now and forevermore is in Christ Jesus. And that's why the author goes on, Paul goes on to say, where's boasting? <laughs> in verse 27, where's boasting? Nowhere. Our boast is in him. Our salvation is in Him. All of God's grace is mediated through the Son, right? All that we receive in terms of the benefits of this Christian life now and forevermore is in Jesus Christ. We're justified in Him alone, right? Have you right, found your justification in Him? Do you think, right, as many people do, well, we're not that bad. Uh, God will grade on the curve. He'll overlook my sin. No, it's not the God of the Bible. The only solution for you is to find life in Christ, right? to find faith in Him. But now, with the sending of the Son, the Old Testament anticipated this, the full justifying activity of God is displayed, demonstrating His justice, demonstrating our justification, and it's found in Christ alone. Find your salvation in him today right let's pray heavenly father thank you for the cross thank you for the lord jesus he alone can save us thank you that in our salvation that you have not compromised your own moral demand one whit but that you have met your holy demand perfectly in jesus christ our lord Help us to appreciate that we need Him and Him alone. That there is no religious leader. There is no way of being right with you. There is no uh, heaven to gain apart from salvation in Christ. Oh, may we rejoice in such a glorious Savior. May we see that in Him alone is our hope now and forevermore. And may even this week we rejoice that we by faith are righteous in Him. That even in our sin, we are righteous in Him. And that we would then graciously and lovingly communicate this to our friends and neighbors so that they too may come to know Jesus Christ as Lord. Thank you for a great Redeemer. And may you in us display your glory by faith in Him, proclamation of Him, and living for Him. And it's in His name we ask all of these things. Amen. Amen. You've been listening to a message recorded during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. To find out more about Cornerstone Church of Knoxville, 
visit us at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com or call our church office at 865-694-4356. We'd love to have you join us in our mission to treasure, grow in, and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ.